This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. This episode launches the public philosophy side of the podcast, which explores with academic guests, philosophical ideas that matter to our everyday life. Our topic for today is children and philosophy. We rarely think of philosophy as a central part of a child's educational curriculum, at least in the United States and the United Kingdom. And this is odd, not just because I'm a philosopher who thinks the subject is indispensable and unavoidable, but because philosophy involves learning about how to think, reason, analyze problems, ideally solve them. And as I like to say to my students, philosophy is about learning to ask the right questions. But philosophy is also a difficult topic. And while most of us are exposed to philosophy through essays, arguments, and debates, one might wonder how philosophy can be taught to children and why it should be taught to them. Enter this episode's guest, Amy Reed Sandoval, who's assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in the United States. Her primary research interests are in political philosophy with a special focus on migration issues, Latin American and Latinx philosophy, bioethics, feminist philosophy, and philosophy for children. She is in the process of developing a philosophy for children program for the Las Vegas community and is currently preparing a philosophy for children field school at the U.S.-Mexico border set to open in July 2022, circumstances permitting. She has recently published a book entitled Socially Undocumented, Identity and Immigration Justice. And she is co-editor of a forthcoming volume entitled Latin American Immigration Ethics. Amy, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. I'm wondering how you got into philosophy. Was it through an inspiring teacher or like me being perplexed by a certain problem or question? And was the topic of children in philosophy always in the back of your mind? In, in certain respects, all of the above. Um, I did have an inspiring teacher, but but what I think led me to that inspiring teacher um, was actually an earlier passion for music. Before I majored in philosophy, um, I had been really involved in the arts in high school, and I was very passionate about opera. And uh, I loved, you know, I, I hadn't been exposed to philosophy as a child, but through uh, studying music and opera, I became very interested in kind of meaning making through different art forms. And what I really loved about um, artists in general and, uh, and, and singers and dancers, people, folks in the performing arts was the fact that they had found something that they were so passionate about and involved some kind of meaning making and expression. And they were willing to make lots of personal sacrifices to pursue that. I, I remember when I was in high school um, involved in the performing arts, I was just finding that really inspirational. But when I got to college, uh, first of all, I started questioning if I really wanted to be an opera singer. I started experiencing some stage fright. Uh, and I also just, I was, I was becoming interesting, interested in politics. And again, I hadn't yet been exposed to philosophy. And so I took a step back from uh, being a music major and I, and I took an intro to philosophy class. And so at, at that point, I did get exposed to a very inspirational teacher um, named Gerald Vision at, at Temple University in Philadelphia. And uh, what I loved about his class, it, it wasn't just the fact that um, suddenly I, I, I saw that it was possible to earn a living uh, contemplating the kinds of questions that I'd always been interested in. And maybe in certain 
with respect, you know, I'd found them in, in operatic arias, right, up until that point. His way of teaching made it clear to me that he was very, very passionate about philosophy. And, and I was looking, you know, since I had this, um, you know, I'd taken a step away from opera and the performing arts, I was looking for a profession in which I could see examples of people who were pursuing something that was very meaningful to them and taking it really seriously and, and maybe in certain respects making sacrifices for it. And so I think that it was it was not only the fact that the content itself was fascinating to me, but the fact that this person, that this professor, was was taking it so seriously, was so clearly passionate about philosophy. He wasn't like a, a sarcastic, you know, teacher, right? Who was constantly making jokes about whether philosophy matters, which is maybe a different approach to teaching. That that really struck me. And and, and I'll just add that I I kind of said all of the above because I didn't have a philosophy class at at the K through twelve level. But when I was exposed to philosophy for the first time in college, it made me feel like I was a kid again. It, it reminded me of what it was like to be a young kid and be approaching the world with this freshness. And I kind of felt like my mind was buzzing. And I, I loved being kind of returned to that, uh, that childlike state. So I think kind of all of those experiences combined to make me want to pursue philosophy as a career. You have this amazing, well-rounded background with, with music. I wasn't aware of your, your background with opera and music. I'm just remembering when I was an undergraduate at UCSB, uh, you, you, we have to do the general education, and I was trying to find an elective, and I thought, well, I'll take introduction to music theory, and thinking it was an introductory class, so I'll be able to take it. And that, the first class happened, and I couldn't understand a single thing, so I went up <laughs> to the professor, and I said, uh, is there any way that what you gave the lectron could be made more accessible. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, I don't think I can. If you found that difficult, you should probably transfer out of this class. And I wasn't, he said it in a very nice way, but it was quite clear to me. I just thought here is a way of thinking uh, that, or not thinking, but a, a way of relating to certain things. I just, I couldn't process as well. So when you were, became interested in philosophy, did you find a lot of overlap between how philosophy is traditionally pursued or did you have to find um, some other aspect of philosophy to connect with the the creative side and seeing how that kind of wonder uh, and when people find something meaningful or potentially meaningful and they want to pursue it with a kind of open and childlike uh, enthusiasm. You mentioned taking a music theory course. I, sh I should actually say this is sort of ironic. I, I was in a performing arts uh, program in high school and um, I did have to take music theory and that was actually my least favorite class, which is ironic, right? Because it has theory in it, right? I would love to kind of return to music theory now and kind of think as a philosopher, right, about, about music theory. I just wanted to say that by way of encouragement or, or solidarity. <laughs> in, in many respects, there isn't overlap, right? I, I was I was interested in um, certain things when I was pursuing music as a career that maybe I'm not as focused on now. But, but I will say, you know, apart from this idea of kind of pursuing some form of meaning and the personal sacrifice involved, I do think that I have uh, long been drawn to the performative aspect of philosophy. And I think, you know, we do we do emphasize the fact that, you know, a lot of uh, philosophy involves armchair theorizing, but there is something um, performative about the way that a philosophy seminar um, is constructed. Or, you know, when you go to a talk and there's, there are kind of rules governing how we ask questions and respond to them. And I do think that there, that's something kind of creative and again, performative that I think um, one wouldn't imagine until you experience it. So, so I like the fact that uh, the performative aspect can sometimes be problematic, right? When it turns into, you know, bullying the speaker, right? Or just trying to ask questions to, um, you know, make a name for oneself. 
But I do think that the fact that we have these rules governing how, you know, ideally we're supposed to engage with someone else's philosophical ideas and the types of questions that we raise and the fact that we're permitted to raise them and how we're supposed to think carefully and critically about um, objections that are posed to us and try and try to give a, um, a, a well-reasoned answer. I, I, I really like that. And, and I think that philosophy at its best can provide a really good model for kind of public sphere political deliberations as well. And so maybe in, in that respect, I, I have seen some overlap, um, though I wish that perhaps there was some more more overlap between what we do in academic philosophy and, and the types of activities that performing artists engage in, for example. I think uh, the public sphere of discourse and debate could do very well with some rules of governing the way in which we engage with others. And I had a colleague who was actually in theology, and he said one of the things he liked about Thomas Aquinas and the sort of practice at that time was that in order to engage with debate in sort of official debate with someone else, you had to be able to articulate and represent their position, your opponent's position to their satisfaction before you could actually discuss something with them, which I thought was very worthwhile. And that sort of contrast, that, that obviously children are very much aware of rules when they play games and they're very much aware of the issues of justice. Uh, if someone does something that's not permitted within, whether it's tag or, or, or play mono or monopoly or something like that, whether it's, it's not permitted or goes outside the rules, they notice that right away. And I, I'm just thinking when you're working with children, do you find that there's a conflict between the kind of rules you're used to and the norms you're used to being a philosopher, academic philosopher and the kind of childlike wonder when you pose a question to them and they they want to explore it and they um, might think of a lot of different things? Or is there a kind of, do you find them that they settle into a kind of, for lack of a better term, a natural framework of discussion with you or with other with other children? In, in certain respects, I think that engaging philosophically with children is is easier than um, philosophical engagement with adults. And sometimes even professional philosophers uh, because children are just so geared up for wonder and they're so sincerely interested in pursuing these questions in ways that aren't self-critical. So we, we kind of get trained in university settings to be really concerned about um, how we're speaking, how we're coming across. Did that sound smart? You know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome, right? But, but often, you know, this, this might happen a little bit at the high school level. But with young kids, um, they just really want to go into that philosophical space and they don't, they're not thinking so much about how others are, are thinking of them in that moment. And so, so I really love that. And, and, and also you, you mentioned, um, you know, the rules of, the rules of engagement and, and, and fineness and thinking about giving, giving a really good representation of someone else's view before, before critically engaging it, right? This is something that children and adults do have to be trained to do. But I also think that um, children aren't yet so wedded to particular views or positions. So it's a lot easier for them to try to kind of take on different viewpoints and explore them. And so in that respect, it's also easier. Um, I have a two-year-old, she's almost three, and I've actually involved her in some philosophy for children classes. She's, she's very, very young. But um, what one challenge for very young ages is showing them that, that someone else can have an opinion that's different from yours and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're not going to be your friend anymore. <laughs> or, or on the flip side, my, my daughter in philosophy for children classes has sometimes um, gotten sad when someone else has the same view that she does. Perhaps we do that as adults as well, right? So, no, that, that's my opinion. <laughs> why, why is he saying the same thing that I think? And there, there have even been some tears as a result of that, right? And so, I mean, there are some skills 
skills that, that we do need to train uh, you know, children to, to take on. But I think in certain respects, it's, it's actually easier sometimes to do philosophy with kids. So I'd be petrified if I had to engage with children in some kind of philosophical way. And it's, it's mostly because I haven't thought about it. I don't, and I'm just generally uneasy around children. I always think of them as almost an alien species. And I don't know how, it's sort of this, uh, the radical interpretation game. They speak a certain language. I speak a different language and I don't know what they want. I don't know what they're doing, even though we're speaking usually the same language, uh, one of those odd situations. And I just I just think if I were inserted into a, a situation where there were a lot of children and say, well, Dr. May is a philosopher, let, let him try to communicate things. I'd probably ask some horrific existential question such as, what is the meaning of death? And um, I've actually even done that in my business consultations and been told, well, we have to we have to take a step back from that because adults <laughs> don't like thinking about that question. And it's sort of odd from that perspective because you've been living your life and haven't thought about the significance of your own life, that kind of thing anyway. But so can you talk about more about the kinds of questions and uh, you ask children's way that you can you find that the kind of techniques you use to really augment their their wonder and their investigation of, of certain ideas. Sure. And, and I do want to say, maybe on the more encouraging side, I think that there are certain virtues in uh, kind of in, in terms of teaching philosophy for children involved in questioning one's ability to really understand and relate to children. Because one of the issues that come up is our adult overconfidence in our abilities to interpret what kids are saying, right? And we should actually be, to be good philosophy for children practitioners as adults, we should question our ability to actually understand what they're saying. Um, there's, there's kind of, it's been articulated as the epistemic challenge of hearing a child's voice because, you know, we, we, we go into our dialogues with kids in all sorts of circumstances with this kind of this, this confidence that we, this idea that they are mini adults, they're not yet well formed. When as a matter of fact, um, kids are often saying really, really fascinating philosophical things, and we don't always have the ability um, to understand them or to hear them. And I, I found, you know, I've been practicing philosophy for children for over a decade. I found that sometimes after a philosophy for children session, I'll, I'll be reflecting on what happened and I'll think, oh no, you know, I automatically interpreted what that kid said in an, in a, an adult-like way. And I completely missed the fact that they were actually raising this this fascinating philosophical problem that I just didn't hear because I was too too overconfident in my ability to, to hear them. So that's just one, one comment Todd, that I actually think that saying, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not so good at this or I'm uneasy, that can be a virtue in teaching philosophy for children. On, on the other hand, in terms of techniques, what, what we tend to emphasize in philosophy for children is the fact that we need to start with children's questions. The adult facilitator is really there to spark philosophical conversation, to kind of create a, a philosophically inviting environment, but not so much to establish the content ahead of time. So we might go in um, with a philosophically suggestive children's book or a thought experiment, and we'll present this activity to the kids but then you step back and you ask the children, you know, what, what questions um, are you inspired to ask? What are you thinking about? And, and often the, the next step will involve kind of just writing down a long list of questions that the kids themselves will raise. You know, and you, we do have to do some work to kind of push them toward the, the philosophical questions. You might read a story and the, the, the question will be, well, why is that character's name? Why, why are they named Blue? Right. Something like that. There might be philosophy there. Right. But we can do some work to help them get toward the philosophical questions. But really, we're facilitators trying to help them uncover their own philosophical impulses. And so that can be a good technique for kind of 
um, avoiding our adult centricity and these kind of epistemic challenges that, that, I, that I talked about before. If you're a regular audience member of this podcast, you'll know that I love talk of virtues. I, I'm a bit of a virtue ethicist or, or think I'm a bit of a virtue ethicist. So that's that's good to hear. I'm also wondering if you could, if you've had any insight into the relationship between two aspects of that I think are integral to philosophy, and it's something that's only come to the fore, I think maybe I might be wrong since the 90s, but people tend to think philosophy is all about intellectual prowess and, and power and, and skills of analysis. But what a lot of philosophers have shown is that there's this whole other side to philosophy that matters is the emotional side, the psychological side, as well as the imaginative side. So working with children in philosophy, have You've seen any insights that actually the children have opened up for you in your own profession that that's been an asset or a virtue for your own practice? Yeah, I I, I love that question. Um, I absolutely think that kind of the, the imagination and the creativity of philosophy absolutely comes up in dialogues with children, and and really the, the more that we can call upon kind of caring, you know, this, the the spirit of caring, the spirit of friendship and, and creativity, I mean, the, the better our our sessions will be, be because um, kids aren't as reluctant to kind of mix in, in their own minds and in their way of talking about philosophy, kind of the, the intellectual um, and, and, and the personal. They're very open to philosophizing through play. In fact, there's a really interesting literature on using play as a way to open up philosophical conversation. You know, as a matter of fact, I started, you know, before I ever taught philosophy to adults in the university setting, I worked with kids and I think I, I taught, I, I did philosophy for children work. And I think that that um, kind of really uh, formed, formed a, uh, an important basis for how it think about doing philosophy and, and why I do think that that play and friendship and caring and other emotions are, are, are just as important um, as these sorts of traditional, so-called traditional intellectual pursuits. I'm slightly familiar with the concept of play. It comes from a, a Dutch anthropologist, doesn't it? And I think um, homo ludens was, is the Latin phrase that comes to mind. I don't know if, if uh, the use of play with children is related to that in some way. From what I understand how play is used with children is, I think you mentioned this before, it's really as an adult when you're trying to play with children, you surrender yourself in a way and really put yourself in the position of they're doing these gestures and might, might be saying things, but then I have to be in, in the position of this might not mean what I think it's meaning because in a context of play, there's a whole different world or narr narrative framework that the child understands and to which you've now been inserted. And so you have to figure out what's going on, sort of like a detective uh, puzzle or, or a story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really important technique. And again, it's um, getting back to the epistemic challenge of, of you know, hearing what children are saying. Um, I think it can be a very good technique for addressing that. Because, and because there, there are also another thing to bear in mind is the fact that there are power dynamics involved in all kinds of philosophical conversations and, you know, especially between adults and children. And so the philosophy for children practitioner, and I would say any good teacher of philosophy needs to be concerned about those dynamics and using play. And, and as you as you said, surrendering yourself to uh, the, the structure and framework that the children are creating, that can be one um, helpful way of subverting those those power dynamics. And another really interesting thing is that um, sometimes kids, um, you'll see that they're willing to raise philosophical questions or make philosophical points when they take on a particular character. And so for some, maybe as themselves, they don't feel comfortable making a certain argument or saying a certain thing, but if they are, you know, pretending to be a, a, a red dinosaur, right, the red dinosaur might want to say this. Um, and so that can create um, an additional sense of safety in, in the philosophy classroom. 
it sounds like we're actually children in philosophy is more about it's more beneficial for adults than children. I think we're slowly going down this this different trajectory because uh, uh, so much of what you're saying is is uh, complementing a lot of the things I've noticed that work in business consultation under the the umbrella or the aegis of meaningful work and getting employees to understand um, different negotiation skills and virtues and practices within their own roles within work. But I want to sort of take a step back and, and come back to the children in philosophy with emphasizing the children bit. We've sort of been skirting this issue and I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. So imagine that I'm a I'm a very skeptical person about teaching children in philosophy. And uh, the question is simply, why is this important? It seems like uh, you're talking about all these benefits. It seems like it's it's more just playtime and conversation time. This can be had in any other way. It doesn't really have to concern philosophy. So why does it why does it matter? Why can't they just learn philosophy when they're teenagers or or young adults? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a, that's a great uh, skeptical question, and, and you're you're right that a lot of this is already happening in the form of play, and I think you're also right that that adults are getting a lot out of doing philosophy with kids, and likely in many cases more than the kids themselves. So I think that these are appropriate uh, skeptical questions to raise. Um, I think that philosophy for children is nevertheless important because we are responsible for helping our children learn to navigate their social world. And that includes a world filled with adults. And I think that they, um, it's it's interesting. I think our conversation is making me think about the translation exercises involved in in, in philosophy for children. I I think that it's very important that children learn that their questions matter. Their philosophical curiosity is not just relevant in, in playtime when no grownups are around, that they can actually, um, that, that they ought to feel empowered to raise the challenging questions that are most meaningful to them. And other kids should listen to those questions and take them seriously and adults should as well. And I think that beyond that, right, we're, we're, we're training kids to, to talk in certain ways, to use language in certain ways. Um, the Philosophy for Children facilitator is helping kids learn uh, these sorts of rules of philosophical engagement. And so um, I, the facilitator, if they're doing their job well, um, will show children the importance of Again, listening carefully to someone else's view, taking it seriously, trying to understand it, and learning to agree or disagree and, and uh, express their, to defend their agreement or disagreement with reasons, learn to entertain objections to their views, right? There, there are lots of rules of engagement that, that we as adults can help our children uh, kind of learn more about. And that's helpful to them, to, to them for, for navigating the school system, for understanding themselves as knowers and feeling empowered in that way. Um, and also for eventually um, being able to engage in, in, in the political system uh, kind of moving forward. Um, but, but I think that you're absolutely right that we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what are we getting out of this? And, and, and also, you know, to what extent is philosophy already happening without our, our, our intervent, intervention and why is that relevant? Well, it's that point in the podcast where we take a break and hear from our sponsors. So we'll be back in just a few moments. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. 
Contact her at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. Hello, this is Martin Bunsell. Like Todd May, I'm a philosopher interested in engaging with more than academics. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I think about philosophy as I hike sections of the Pacific Crest Trail. You can do that by reading my new book, Thinking While Walking, available on Amazon in both paper and on Kindle. A kind reader writes, reading this book is like a leisurely stroll with your favorite professor, an opportunity to weave philosophical musings with an awe of nature. It is both provocative and delightful. I hope you'll read it and feel the same way. If so, you can follow my philosophical blog and more at mbunzel.com. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. If you're interested in organizational improvement in view of meaningful work, virtues, compassion, and self-development, contact philosophytoyou.com to get the process of transformation and innovation underway. We can help identify your goals and how to achieve them based on your organizational strengths and potential. We can also provide staff seminars for learning and development that promote group dynamics, group learning, and not just mere instruction. Let's start embracing life in the workplace. Visit us at www.philosophy2theletteru.com. And now, back to our show. I just want to ask you more about the organization uh, children or philosophy for children, if you can say more about its history, about how it works, and if any listeners are interested in how they can get this program uh, as a part of their their child's school or part of the the community in which they work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, there, in philosophy for children, um, there's often a lot of talk about the great founders of philosophy for children, right? So Matthew Lipman and Margaret Sharp, um, the writings of Dewey are, are really relevant here. And, and those writings do make lots of references to uh, the political benefits of, of doing philosophy with kids, right? Just this idea that you think you're absolutely right. We need to be able to learn how to come together and listen to one another and entertain views that are different from from our own and not be so consumed with this kind of competitive spirit that comes up in the public sphere, that comes up in certain university philosophy settings, right? This idea that it's all about winning and defeating your opponent, right? Because not only is that bad for politics, we we kind of cheat ourselves if we're constantly consumed with winning philosophical debates and kind of uh, um, looking great, looking smart in certain settings. I would say kind of maybe going back to the 70s, 70s, probably that, that's a, a, a space where you see some really important kind of writings and projects and programs coming up in philosophy for children. And it's been growing since then. Philosophy for children is being practiced um, on, a, on a global scale. Um, there are a number of really important uh, organizations that have been established to help people who want to start their own philosophy for children programs. I pick Plato um, is a is a really the philosophy learning and teaching organization within the United States um, is is very important. If you go to their webpage um, of, of Plato, the philosophy learning and teaching organization, you'll see tons of resources about how to start your own philosophy for children program, lesson plans, books that you can use in the classroom, um, funding sources. There's a lot out there. 
I think part of the beauty of philosophy for children is you don't need a lot of money um, to get a philosophy for children program started. You don't need an expensive laboratory. Really, you need to have a little bit of space and time to sit down with young people and uh, empower them to raise their philosophical questions. Um, and so, of course, there are there are recommendations out there for books that can be used and thought experiments and films, right? Um, so it's kind of a Pandora's box. Once you start looking, there's just so much work out there. But I would say um, that for, for, to those who are considering starting their own program, I would advise starting small, getting a group of, of a, a group could be a small group of committed, you know, kids and parents, parental support can be really important, it is, is really important. Um, and just, you know, creating some time each week to talk about, about philosophy, to kind of raise philosophical questions. You don't need a degree in philosophy. Um, it, it's not about teaching kids the history of philosophy or, you know, what Plato said, what Kant said. It's really creating space in which kids can raise the questions that are most meaningful to them, see those questions getting taken seriously and, and learn to, to respond to other views that might be challenging to their own. The uh, audience may not be familiar with the philosophical idea of a thought experiment, uh, and I'll try to give a, a competent account, but basically it's a, it's a situation or story which raises certain issues and forces you as the audience to make a decision about something or commit to an answer and then try and provide some justification for it. Uh, Amy, do you have any favorite thought experiments that you use when you teach children? Sure. I mean, I, a really popular one, the ship of Theseus, for example, right? So, uh, so imagine that the way that I usually tell it in, in the pre college philosophy class, I'm, you know, imagine that, you know, a ship is, should, should, I, should I tell the story or? Yes. <laughs> Before I go there, I thought I should <laughs> clear it with you first. Let's just imagine. <laughs> that, um, you know, a ship has washed ashore, kind of this old ship, this old boat, it's just kind of sitting there uh, rotting on the beach and someone comes along and they say, oh, look at that poor ship, it's kind of rotting away. And so they they take down one of the planks, one of the old rotted planks of the ship and they throw that plank onto the shore and they say, okay, I'm going to put up this nice fresh plank. And then the next day they come back, they see another rotting plank and they're frustrated once again. So they rip down that plank, throw it onto the shore, right, and put up a fresh plank. And so now you know, time goes by, there's a pile of rotting planks going slowly, but surely this person is replacing all of the, the rotting, the, the rotted planks with new planks. And then just, just imagine that um, at, at one point, this ship, all of its rotting planks have been uh, replaced with these fresh new planks. And then someone else comes walking along the shore and they see this pile of rotting planks and they say, hey, I'll, I'll put these, these planks together and make a ship. And so imagine that they build they build a ship and they put all of the rotting planks in the exact same places where they've been positioned before. And now you have two ships side by side. I mean, one looks slightly more rotted than the other. And the question is, which which is the ship of Theseus? Which is the original? Which is the original boat? Right. And so um, that could be a really fun. You know, undergrads love it. We all love it. And, and kids really love debating that that question. And this, this debate can go on for hours, even with six year olds. I, I have no answer. So I'd be I'd fail the thought experiment. I just sit there. I don't know. I mean, it raises issues of, of personal identity, obviously, and, and things like that. And I'm just wondering if any children have come out with some remarkable insights about um, the answer, answering that or responding to that thought experiment. You know, I, I don't I don't have a particular example offhand, but I will say that the debate, the way that the debate goes is kind of shock, even even with very young kids is shockingly similar to the way that the, the ways in which these debates tend to happen at the undergraduate level. Right. And this is what I just love about philosophy for children. I'm 
we're all inclined toward these questions, right? We have the ability to address these questions and there's something really humbling about approaching them. It doesn't matter if you're six years old or if you're a professional philosopher who has encountered this problem a gazillion times in your career, right? You're going to have to kind of, you will likely have to kind of muddle through trying to come up with an answer and kind of there's fun in that and the challenges of that. And it really doesn't matter how you're positioned. And so um, that, that, that's what's been most striking to me in doing that experiment with that, that thought experiment with kids is the fact that they're approaching the issue um, with the same rigor that adults do. I just remembering a, a certain certain key words that pop up in a lot of Plato's dialogues, which is re- a really interesting where Socrates, we, we think that philosophy, especially when Plato talks about in the dialogues is always concerned about truth. But there are quite a few times where Socrates doesn't talk about truth. He talks about the point of the philosophical conversation as, as one of persuasion. And there's good and bad persuasion. There's the sophist who does the bad persuasion. And there's Socrates who's trying to do, I, I would take it kind of the good persuasion. And I was just thinking when, when one of the great things about philosophy, as long as it's done well or virtuously, as it were, is you have a position, you think this has got to be the right answer. I really find what that person says convincing. And then Someone else comes along and says, well, here are some questions to raise about that. Oh, no, that, that's got to be the right position. And you find yourself, and I think some people might look at it and think, well, Todd might be weak-minded because he's, he's easily persuaded by all these positions or these, all these responses and so forth. But what I find great about that kind of process is you get so enwrapped in the arguments a person and justifications a person presents. You think, oh, that's really, that sounds really good. And then for someone to come along and say, ah, but did you think of this? And you think, oh my, I didn't think of that. And that's this, this process of discovery that happens. And I, I just, I would have never thought of that as being, I know this might sound daft or, or strange. I never would have thought of that as an adult of being childlike. I would have thought about that in terms of being a serious philosopher. I'm discovering something new, but it must be something about this uh, emotional or affectative side of us that links so well to this, to discovering new things. This, this, as you said, it's this, and as, as Socrates and Plato would say, it's this aspect of wonder that we all share in that that motivates and drives us. And I want to re- I'm going to try to relate this to something specific to your own experience. You wrote in a very interesting blog for Psyche about your own experience when traveling to Oaxaca, Mexico. You were on a, a funded uh, project and you wanted and you'd been there before and you wanted to reinvest or you know show your appreciation for the community that that you loved when you visited it, if I if I recall correctly. Yeah. And you wanted to teach children a bit about philosophy. So you found yourself in a position working with children. I don't remember what age, so you, you might want to talk about that. But you were trying to teach them some aspects of deductive logic. And I just wanted to wonder if you could say, uh, Sarah, uh, share a few thoughts with our audience about why deductive logic, what that is, why it's important. And then um, as the story went, something went awry as you were doing uh, as you were trying to teach deductive logic, and if you can comment to give a recount about what happened and how you responded, and all the kinds of insights that flowed from that. So, so a little bit by way of background, um, kind of that that article that I wrote responds to um, a pretty uh, heated debate amongst philosophy for children scholar practitioners. It's a methodological debate. So, of course, you know I've been emphasizing you know throughout our discussion, Todd, the fact you know the importance of letting children ask their own questions, right? So the idea here is we're not trying to impose certain philosophical views. We're not going in saying, you know, this is the right view. This is the wrong view. This is the question you really should be asking. It's supposed to be completely bottom up, up, right? It's coming from the children themselves. 
But of course, um, the flip side of this um, is that, you know, sometimes children may say things uh, in the classroom, just like adults will for a variety of different reasons that might be uh, kind of offensive, maybe even harmful to other kids in the classroom, right? If, if, a, if, a, if someone says something that's racist or sexist, the question then is, what is the, the adult facilitator to do? Um, do you just shut down the, the racist or sexist comment in the name of creating a, a welcoming environment for everyone in the class? Or does that go against our training? Is that a case of the adult stepping in and saying, no, I have I have the better vision of the world and what you just said is wrong. And so I have strong, given given you know, the, the fact that the, the, the spaces in which I've, I've worked, I've, I've uh, worked with um, kids that are vulnerable in many different ways. Um, I tend to come down on one side of that debate and I express that in the article. But this is kind of going way back. The, 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 the class that I wrote about in this article in, I, I was in Oaxaca, Mexico. My, my partner is an anthropologist, was doing research there. And so I was coming along on these research trips and I wanted to find, I wanted to make some kind of a contribution or kind of get involved in the community in some way while I was there. And so I was teaching a class um, to uh, middle schoolers, primarily um, uh, Triki identifies with Triki is an, an indigenous group in, in Oaxaca who are supported by a nonprofit organization. Um, so they experience different types of marginalization, racism, uh, poverty. And so I was thinking a lot about these issues in the classroom. Um, but of course, you know, I wanted to go in, I have my philosophy for children training. I said, let's do a deductive logic course. What basically my, my goal there was to show kids, you know, there, there are certain rules of logic and really, you know, if A, then B, A, therefore, therefore B, right? There are these rules that you can kind of plug in whatever you want. And you can, you know, if your premises are right, you can get a, you can get a, um, a valid conclusion, you can have a valid argument. And so I wanted to just get them to think a little bit about the rules of logic, but but not focus so much on the content of what they were arguing for, right? So that, that, that was my goal. I was trying to create kind of a free and open space for philosophical engagement. And so I said, okay, well, let's just try and make two different types of arguments. We'll think about the premises for the arguments and see if we can, you know, put together a valid argument. And the one, the one claim to argue for was that Oaxaca is pretty. The other claim is that you know, would be that Oaxaca is not pretty. I just wanted them to go through the exercise of, of generating premises in support of these different conclusions. Just say, look, you know, this is philosophy. We can argue many different types of things. Just think about the reasons that you're giving for your arguments. And so we, uh, and, and Oaxaca, just to be clear for those who aren't familiar with the area, Oaxaca is a very fascinating uh, area of Mexico, important area of Mexico, lots of indigenous communities, many indigenous languages spoken. And so when we got to the statement, Oaxaca is not pretty, a kid in the class said their argument was Oaxaca is not pretty because there are uh, many indigenous people in Oaxaca, right? So that, and that sounded to me like a racist statement. And I didn't, as I should say at the time, I, I was still getting to know the kids. So I didn't know if that child identified as indigenous or if they didn't. So I, this was my first day teaching. Um, I, I was very, uh, I was made very nervous by this claim. I was, I was, I had, I had to do a lot of kind of convincing to get this class going. And I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm 10 minutes into my first class ever. And this disaster had just happened, had just happened. And so in, in that moment, my reaction, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't mean to the kid. I think that I definitely expressed shock and surprise. And I, and I think I said something like, well, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be the right thing to say. That, that would be a, a, a wrongful thing to say, which really goes against all of our training. It's, it's a controversial thing to do in the classroom, but I suspected that there were indigenous kids in the classroom. And I felt that as a facilitator, I couldn't just let a comment like that flow freely and say, oh, you know, that, that's interesting. Let's analyze it more. I, I felt my inclination was to, sh to kind of shoot it down, at least that's what I did in the moment. And so 
I, a number of people think that that disagree with me, think that I should have approached that differently. But what I write about in that article was the fact that was I dealt with that issue so awkwardly. I was so visibly kind of uncomfortable with, with the statement. And the fact that I kind of said, you know, that, you know, that it would be wrong to say that, that I, I think opened the doors um, to uh, better philosophical conversations in the future. I learned afterward that the child who made that comment is indigenous himself. He is tricky. After I kind of maybe mismanaged that situation, he and his brother said, oh, you know what? This is what um, outsiders say when they come to Oaxaca. They think that it's ugly because there are indigenous peoples here and that indigenous peoples are ugly, right? And, I'm, and I'm, I have a teacher with white privilege, right? And so I think that if I hadn't expressed shock and surprise and if I hadn't been dismissive of that statement, the students might have thought, okay, well, we're just telling this teacher what she wants to hear. This is what, this is what a white person thinks about Oaxaca. And so... In, in mismanaging, I'm doing air quotes here, and kind of mismanaging the situation, I actually think that I created an environment in which more philosophy was ultimately happening. And of course, I think that as a teacher, given everything that we've talked about, you have to use your kind of shooting down, I don't even want to call it shooting down, right? but you have to use this, this power of being dismissive very, very carefully and selectively. But my view is that sometimes we have to do it because if not, we're contributing to patterns of, of marginalization and power dynamics in the classroom that can end up um, silencing certain voices in the classroom. But, but this is a very controversial point. Um, and that's, that's, my, that's my way of approaching these kinds of questions. That makes something which sounds so straightforward, so complex. I, I'm thinking of many experiences myself, but I'm just thinking also about the ways in which, I mean, it sounds to me like you did the right thing. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because you're my guest, but uh, <laughs> the reason why I'm saying that has to do with uh, what you just described shows the complexity of the ways in which philosophical conversation works and the emo the kinds of the performative aspect that we talked about before. So if the children are, are watching you as the facilitator and they think they're actually waiting to see what kind of emotional reaction as well as philosophical reaction you're going to have, but it's going to come first emotional in the sense of disapproval or maybe even stronger of disgust or anger, that kind of thing. And all these things are always at play in philosophical discussion, whether the philosopher likes it or not. And so be, being able to work with, undergraduates and peers is a bit different because they're, everyone is sort of clear a bit more on certain rules. But when you're working with children, there's always that X factor of not knowing what's at play. So it sounds like it is very difficult. And I probably would have put my tail between my legs and ran out of the classroom and had a breakdown. So I don't know how to deal with this. I really, I mean, because there is so much going on. It sounds like I don't know if you felt like that. It sounds like you didn't feel like that at the moment because maybe you were second guessing yourself, but it sounds like you were aware of, wait, if I don't react this way, then something is not right um, with me and, and perhaps it's it's not right with the children, but it, it's remarkable. And how was your article responded to or how was there a lot of controversy after you you advanced this view and and, and are you persona non grata in certain, <laughs> certain domains of, uh, of philosophy? <laughs> pedagogical philosophy. Let's see. I, I like to think that I'm not persona non grata. Um, I hope, hopefully not. Um, I did, you know, I'd, I'd also written a, an a longer kind of version of that story came up in an academic article. I think that maybe if I had to guess, I would say that maybe it's either a 50-50 split in terms of how people come down on, on this issue. 
or maybe more people would be inclined to disagree with me. This is within the field of philosophy for children, where again, I, I understand the disagreement because the idea here is, you know, as an adult, we have a lot of power, we can do a lot of harm. Um, we're, we're not always hearing kids correctly, right? So there's maybe different interpretations can be made of, of the performative act of that kid raising the question, right? And so I automatically kind of uh, interpreted it in a certain way. And so I, I understand kind of the other side, but th- this has been, um, it's a very lively scholarly debate within philosophy for children. And, and again, I, I think that my own views have been strongly shaped by the fact that I worked for, with indigenous youth for years in Oaxaca. Then I, when, I, when I moved to El Paso, Texas, I started a program at the U.S.-Mexico border um, with uh, a, a lot of kind of issues, with, primarily with kind of a Chicano, Chicana, Mexican-American youth um, and, and kind of thinking about, again, kind of patterns of marginalization there and, you know, what, what it means to do philosophy for children uh, with groups that have been historically silenced and what it means to, in my own case, navigate white privilege in those spaces. I feel convinced that I'm, that I'm uh, kind of on, on the right side of this issue, though I appreciate, I appreciate the other, the other view. I mean, to get back just one, one more final comment here, you know, we've been talking about the importance of maybe not separating kind of emotions and friendship and caring and other another virtues from the reasoning process of philosophy. And I, and I think that some commentators on kind of my argument about this Oaxaca story have said, well, wouldn't it have been better if you would just remain calm and said, well, wait a second, like, t- tell me more about you know, what, what do you mean by that? What would be a possible counter argument? You know, um, what or flesh that out a bit more, right? Been, been purely intellectual about that. And I can see why, you know, perhaps that would have generated a good result. But I think, again, for, for the kids in that classroom, that statement was emotionally charged. Like, I may have misinterpreted the performative act, but if, you know, if you're a victim of, of, of racism and you're feeling compelled to parrot these, these racist views in, in the classroom, this is emotionally charged. And I, and I think that a, a, an emotional response is not necessarily anti-philosophical. Um, so, so maybe there are different ways in which one can handle that situation well. But I think that in my case, the kind of emotional and, and awkward uh, kind of lumbering response that I made that was ultimately perhaps somewhat dismissive, it did bring about important philosophical benefits that would have been lost if I had been purely academic in my kind of purely kind of purely philosophical, again, with air quotes in my response to that statement. <laughs> it raises so many issues. Uh, and I'm just thinking one of the things I get aggravated with myself is the way in modernity and I have a philosophical take on this. It probably comes from this thing that uh, that Max Weber called managerialism. But we, for some reason, we we tend to think that there's only one right answer. And if we have multiple right answers, something's got to be wrong because there's only one right answer. And a lot of people don't realize that there might be one right answer for certain kinds of problems or questions. But that's not usually the case with a lot of other different things that involve uh, working with other people, and certainly with a perform anything that's that relies so heavily on per- performance, is that there could be many different ways in which you can respond to a situation as as you experience that could work in in, in many different ways. Like I could see colleagues of mine handling, you know, what what do you mean by that, and doing that quite well. So the other thing that matters about the performance issues is who the person is that's actually put center stage. You know, maybe that wouldn't have worked for you because. Um, it, it wouldn't have felt right for you to to ask that kind of question. It's very it's opened so many doors, and it, it could be another podcast. I was also thinking about the problem of people think that we should always have these kind of neutral statements or values or practices, and in the end, I don't. They might go. They might be neutral so far, you know, to a certain extent. But I think when you pursue them 
there's always going to be some kind of advantage or disadvantage that that goes somewhere or the other. Um, but I guess that's a that's a different topic. We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests two questions. And the first question is, has there been any one philosophy or philosopher that's been central or influential in your own work and research? It would be hard for me to point to maybe one philosopher around whom my work revolves. But of late, I have uh, become very interested, recent years, I've become very interested in uh, Mexica philosophy or kind of otherwise known as Aztec philosophy from what's now Mexico. And I think that some of the things that I love about um about Mexica philosophy have been touched upon in our conversation. So what I really like about it is the fact that, as, as the philosopher uh, Jim Maffey points out, it's it, it it's a philosophy that is very concerned with truth, but it's ultimately more of a path-seeking philosophy than a truth-seeking philosophy. So not just so truth plays a really important role, but uh, but the but the Mexica have long uh, within within the context of Mexica philosophy, um, a longstanding concern has been with the limitations of what we can know and what we're able to know and achieve, and the practices that we engage in to kind of um, absorb as much truth as we can and lead, lead the most balanced life that we can in the face of that uncertainty. And uh, there was also lots of concern, kind of given given Aztec or Mexica metaphysics, this concern with the fact that we live in a universe that's constantly in motion, and that kind of the universe as we know it, kind of now in this particular age, is going to come to an end. And uh, the Mexica were kind of the, the ancient Mexica were nevertheless very concerned with trying to preserve our current age or era um, as well as they could. And so I, I like kind of reading about. Their, their work, their kind of preservation activities in light of the climate change that we're dealing with today. I think it's very interesting to see kind of a philosophical system that's oriented toward caring in, in certain respects for, for one's world and maintaining a sense of order. Um, and I also just love it because it, it there's so many layers to interpreting Mexica philosophy. It's interdisciplinary. You have to learn about history and, and politics and language and the contemporary lives of Mexica people, right, and, and, and their descendants. And so um, I would say that that's kind of where a lot of my, my thinking is uh, now in terms of a particular philosophical system or, or history. It sounds like another great example of history mattering in some way where we gain a different perspective of what we're doing and, and uh, how historical practices and ideas can actually provide potential resolutions and solutions to our own problems and, and help. Yeah, shift absolutely. So the final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom, be they theoretical or practical for our audience? Philosophical engagement takes many different forms. And I think that we should strive to open ourselves to all of them. I remember I had a high school theater teacher back in my days of wanting to become a performing artist who told me that I should try to find a career that enabled me to use all the different parts of myself. And so I thought it was really interesting. And in in philosophy, in in professional philosophy, we are kind of pushed to use maybe a particular part of ourselves that can engage in a certain type of reasoning. But I think that, you know, within philosophy, I've been trying to use all the different parts of myself in in doing this kinds of work. And so I think that whether one turns to philosophy as as a career or pursuit or or something else, I like my high school theater uh, director's suggestion. Suggestion that we should find a pursuit in which we feel like we're calling on uh, all of our different talents and, and, and fears and kind of inclinations in different ways that can help us feel complete. Amy, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy, and I wish you all the best of luck with your research and ongoing projects. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you would like to know more about Amy's research, writings, and projects, please visit her personal website at www.amyreadsandoval.com. Or please check out the podcast blurb for websites, social handles, and links to our sponsors. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share and subscribe. If you're interested in sponsoring Living Philosophy, please get in touch. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.